Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Now here's your host, Brian Brodeur. All right, cool. So question one, I'm going to read the question here and we'll let you loose. In 1975, an established upper middle level band is ready with material for a new album. They have an obligation to make one more for their record label. You know, we're thinking of artists like a Jay Giles band, a Little Feet, maybe Chicago, Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt. These musicians, in theory, would have control over their product. In the broadest terms, could you outline for us the progress of the album development, the album production, from the moment the artists walk into the studio to the moment it appears in stores. Specifically, where did that happen and what recording professionals were involved, who paid for it, what was the artist's input at a given stage? And we're going to specifically look at what changed from the 70s with album-oriented rock, and then we go into the 80s with you know the technologies changing into the 90s, we want to look at what happens at 1995, and then what is the situation currently? Go ahead. Well, what I can do is give you a broad answer to this question, because my professional mastering career started in 1982, but I was certainly a part of the music industry starting, I guess, in 1970 and continuing on since then. So, in general, this is the deal. My feeling is that in the 1970s, the music industry existed to a large degree in pretty much the same mode that had existed since the 1940s. Uh, Labels signed bands and uh, gave them recording contracts and paid royalties based on a percentage of sales minus all of the studio time, uh, the promotional expenses, the miscellaneous expenses that were substantial. They were quite a part of what the original royalties would be, and as a result, these contracts might not have been very favorable for the artists, but because the record companies controlled the purse strings, they had the manufacturing under their own control, they had the studios under their own control, and had the funds to bankroll these projects, the bands had little to say about what actually happened financially and artistically in a a way as well because the artists wrote the songs or sometimes if they weren't songwriters per se they worked with uh, A&R people, artists and repertoire who gave them selections and suggestions as to what they should record. Often what happened was that artists had the opportunity to record material of their own choosing and then sometimes the record companies would accept it Sometimes they would reject it based on what they saw as being commercially viable material. If a a band went too far out, they might say, well, there's no singles on here. We can't market this successfully and go back into the studio and do it again, which, of course, would be expensive 
and it would be charged to the artist because they would have to re-record. Some labels allowed their artists to record only in that company's studios. If the artist was smart, they rehearsed the musical material in advance so as to make efficient use of the recording time. Some bands went in cold and spent endless numbers of hours getting the perfect snare drum sound and arrangement for the songs. Some bands, like for just a rough example, the Beatles recorded their first album in one day. Recording engineers who worked for a record company were used to working in a proscribed way. They had blocks of time. You were supposed to be able to finish three songs in one session, and the sessions were mostly oriented towards singles, not albums. Well, as time went on, changes occurred. Independent studios opened up, and more relaxed ambience and adventurous engineers and staff came along to make the artists more comfortable. Technology advanced with regard to acoustics, consoles, number of recording tracks, etc. Music was still recorded on analog tape, but two-inch tape width with 24 tracks was the norm by the 1970s, as opposed to three tracks on one-inch tape, which was the way things went down pretty much in the early 60s, late 50s. So then, as these changes happened, costs began to come down. The actual manufacture of the studio equipment began to change, and people went for the clarity, quote-unquote, of transistors and replaced tubes, which were the driving elements in consoles and microphones and such previously. Now people may go back now and in hindsight look and say that they got superior quality out of tube equipment, but solid state was definitely the way to go in happening studios in the late 70s. Studios also began to be owned by the artists themselves. Once again, the Beatles were adventurous and ahead of the game there. They made a recording studio in the basement of Apple Records in 1968. That was one of the first studios that was actually owned by the artists, and they could go in there at any time they wanted and record for as long as they liked. That particular studio wasn't successful, but then the Diamond cast and others sprung up, and artists were no longer directly answerable to the record company for studios. And as a result, more positions opened up with the advent of independent facilities, and engineers began to be more creative. And it was also during this time that a special mastering engineer position evolved to optimize the sound on the analog vinyl records that were derived from the analog tape. Now, as time went on, we we're already up here into the 1980s. Artists gained yet greater control of their recording lives. Digital equipment got better. Pro Tools came along and allowed the artist and the engineer loads of flexibility with huge numbers of tracks, which was good in some ways and bad because it put off making decisions. With three tracks, you had to pretty much decide what your drum sound was going to be like and how the background vocals were going to be mixed. And if you had a horn section, that would be established right away. And then you could mix these things and bounce them from recorder to recorder. But the sound, by and large, was established. Large recording facilities in the 80s were becoming fewer in number as home recording became more common. This has continued. This trend has continued with lots and lots these days of small recording studios and recording in just normal acoustical spaces. You might record it literally in a garage, in a bedroom, in a living room without specific 
treatment to the sound to make sure that everything was accurate. I get all of my business, or most of it these days, from independent artists and small labels. And it has come to the point now where folks can record almost anywhere with reasonable results or sometimes better than reasonable results, really good sounding recordings. But all this points to the fact that because recordings are not being made in controlled areas anymore where the acoustics are known, the mastering engineer's job is most valuable because we act as a safety net for aspiring recordists. And when they make music in less than perfect surroundings, we are able to listen under controlled conditions and correct what sonic anomalies might have occurred in the recording process. And now artists currently make more income from touring and from merch that they sell than selling CDs or hard copies of their music because the public has become accustomed to getting music at low cost or for free. And that's a trend that the record companies such as they are are fighting against. And the final word has not yet been said on that. There are lots of artists out there that are making money on digital downloads, but the whole process of making a record and the contracts and technicalities have changed greatly since the uh, 1960s and 70s. Wow, great. That's a great starting point. I have a few follow-up questions. Even going backwards, if we look at the idea of what an artist's life is as a recording artist, you know, we look at popular music today. Now, we'll come back to sort of 95 and the 2015, but it has fundamentally changed, and we both see this from the studio world, or even as we are fans and we are consumers, we see how things have changed. If you look at what you call popular music, you know, which is this mass consumed people who play the Super Bowl, you know, this kind of pop stars, in some ways they're the same. And in some ways, how that process is happening is very different. I don't want to get too far off track, but even just as an opinion, as someone who's been in the business as a veteran, and as a fan, because we'll get to this later about your background and including you still are active doing radio. But as a fan, too, you have that layer that's baked into you being a professional engineer. Let's speak to that a little bit. It's not the days of BGs selling millions of vinyl records and getting airplay. Give me your thoughts on that. Well, no, it isn't that so much anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm constantly amazed when I read about the numbers of CDs being sold by top artists, billboard charts, for example, where there are sometimes just tens of thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands if it's a really successful record or CD. Whereas before, it was millions of CDs. And you want to go back to the halcyon days of CD sales or record sales where groups like the Bee Gees or Fleetwood Mac or Pink Floyd might sell or Carol King might sell millions and millions of copies of their records. It comes down to the point these days where the CD is being used more as a promotional item and less as something that is a marketable profit center, I think. It drives people to go to large arena concerts for the major acts, and that is where the money is being made for the act. That's why 
this is going to age me a little bit, but just in terms of the way things have changed, when I first started going to concerts, I got to see the Rolling Stones in 1969 at Madison Square Garden with B.B. King and Ike and Tina Turner and Terry Reed and other acts also on the same bill for $5 a ticket, and it was a pretty good seat. And that was because the Rolling Stones were out there promoting their new album, Let It Bleed, and didn't have to charge quite so much to put on the show. And also the show was a lot less elaborate in terms of staging. But now the huge money is in touring where that same act might get five or $600 for each individual seat and play bigger arenas. And the whole thing has changed in terms of where the act makes their money. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. So... Following up on your model about these large artists filling arenas, and that's where the dollars are being made at the three, four hundred dollars a seat and upwards. We think of artists like a Katy Perry, a Taylor Swift, even like somebody we've worked with, Keith Urban, and these large efforts, these really big tours. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of, say, a young 20 something songwriter, let's say they're talented and they have some good songs. And okay, what determines good songs? We'll leave that off the table for now. But let's say they're talented and they're the singer-songwriter and they want to pursue this. Two things I want to know about is, can you elaborate on how that world is different for that upcoming artist from 20 or 30 years ago but also where should their mindset be? How should they be looking at coming into this experience of working with what is essentially a production team? Well, the mindset of a new artist in some ways hasn't changed very much. Somebody has had the inspiration and write the songs, arrange the songs, assemble a band, or make a decision, an artistic decision to go solo. The artist has many more tools, however, that they can draw on to get past this initial stage. Now, in the old days, they used to have to become a pretty good concert draw as an independent act. Then maybe the record company would hear about it, send a scout out there, listen to a couple of concerts, contact the band or the band's management, send them in for some exploratory studio work, and the band would probably have never seen the inside of a recording studio before, and that led to uh, inefficiencies in terms of how they worked and all that. And uh, eventually, if they were good enough, the record company would deem them an investment, put money into studio time, and allow them to go in and record a single or an exploratory first album, and put it out there on the market. The record company would advertise it in the appropriate venues, magazines, television, newspapers, what have you, and if there were any kind of enthusiasm, then they would be allowed to go back and make a second album, etc. 
Nowadays, some of this has been shortcutted by the fact that the artists can write the songs, but then they don't have to be beholden to the record company. They can record in their own environment, but it's still a very competitive world out there, and you have to be noticed. If you go into a studio, uh, you're going to have good microphones. You're going to have a solid console with somebody who knows what they're doing behind it. You're going to be able to make the most out of recording time, and it's a much more efficient process than before. Basically, you will have had the opportunity to work with professionals, which is a slightly analogous situation to the old recording studio situation, but you'll have more control over what you do and what you do with the final product. You can put it up on your website, again, see if it clicks with the public, and go from there. And then hopefully you'll start touring and you'll be able to bring in some of that ticket money and T-shirt money that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. I got a good question for you. I made a little note here as we've been talking. Something that we encountered oftentimes here at our facility now, you know, you and I, this is not our first rodeo. We've been around the block. And you and I know each other. We met originally at one of the largest mastering studios in New York City. World. In the world, that's right, with a very storied history. And we'll come back and talk a little bit more mastering shortly. But something we encounter here these days is artists or customers of ours, people who are going to come into the studio to work, there's a perception that they can go down to Guitar Center and spend whatever amount of money it is, $200, $500, and buy a set of gear, and that's perfectly fine for them. And in some cases, it is. There's plenty of albums that have been made with a guitar, a microphone, and a tape recorder, right? But I'd like to know your thoughts on, I know that I can get a particular sound out of, for example, the microphone I'm speaking into now, a Neumann U87, into a Neve preamp, into a quality interface. I also know that that signal chain essentially costs under ten grand, but well over $5,000. That dollar figure might be great for a professional facility, but not for an independent artist. But that same independent artist, we have heard time after time saying, well, I don't need your gear. I can do this at home and I'm fine. This is an interesting thing to me because that is different. That's new from 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you couldn't do that. If you were recording it at home, you had a four-track cassette recorder and maybe an SM58 Shure microphone. And the quality you got from that, guaranteed, wasn't going to be the same that you would get at a professional studio. But that argument is being made to us all the time that we don't need you. And I would attach that to mastering too. So I would like your input on, number one, what are your thoughts about the recording studio environment with professionals and professional equipment? And if that matters today. And number two how a professional mastering engineer, now remember, this can be two different things. You have a client that comes in and does not use us, but comes to you with their home recording. But then you have a client that comes to us who does use the five to ten to $25,000 worth of equipment with a professional engineer. 
and then comes to you as a mastering engineer. Can you speak to that whole picture, please? I think the word that you use that is really critical here is professionalism. You can go out and buy that equipment and make a passable recording. And no matter what you buy, it still requires that you put a good amount of time into it to learn how to make an acceptable recording. It's not the kind of thing that you'd be able to do instantaneously. And it's a long road of trial and error usually before you get to the point where you feel sort of secure in putting it out there. But the recording world, because everybody can go out and buy software, and there are a good number of people who feel that they're talented enough to go ahead and make recordings that will go into the professional arena, it's a very competitive world, and basically what you need to put you over the top and make you stand out would be the use of professional people, operating professional gear, taking care to make sure that all your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. I sometimes use the analogy of you can go out to a dental supply store and buy all kinds of dental equipment <laughs> and you know perhaps even go on the Internet and find a book on how dentistry operates and how dentists work. But if it were me, I sure as heck wouldn't want you to begin experimenting on pulling my tooth or doing my dental work, even though you had the same tools that a practicing dentist might have. It's a similar situation in terms of recording in a way, because if you want to get the best results, you need, I believe, years of experience and knowledge of the best equipment for the job and how to use it. And that's the best way to make you stand out in a very overcrowded and oversaturated entertainment industry these days. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for part two of the conversation. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening.